Hi, I'm Chris Farrell, an economics and finance author and journalist. And I'm Twyla Dang. I'm an entrepreneur and a podcaster. The point of this podcast is simple. There's a misconception about people with low and unstable incomes. We think they don't know how to manage money. But they do. People and families with low and unstable incomes are often creative and collaborative with their finances. We'll show you that community is the best investment a person can make. This is Small Change, money stories from the neighborhood. I know a lot of people with disabilities, and I don't know a single one who, like, just really just was planning their entire life just, like, never to work and to sit with their feet up and eat ding-dongs all day. This is Katrina Simmons. She's energetic, very welcoming, and was the only interview participant to give us homework. She also happens to be living with a disability and had a lot to share with us about her everyday experience. We'll hear more from her later. One of the goals we had with this podcast is to change the perception of individuals with low and unstable incomes. We've mentioned before that when we decide that these individuals need to change the way they handle money, we are judging the way that they live. We know that idea is wrong, and hopefully this podcast is proof of that. By blaming individuals, we get it wrong. There are institutional barriers that keep individuals with low and unstable incomes from making progress. And it's bigger than just financial institutions. These are overall societal and government institutions that weigh people down. So ultimately, people want the opportunity to help themselves. They want to live with dignity. Jennifer Garbo is an Ojibwe woman and financial educator with the University of Minnesota Extension. Jennifer's work is primarily with Native Americans on tribal lands in northern Minnesota. We asked her about the impact of institutional bias on individuals with low and unstable incomes and the communities that they're a part of. Well, I automatically think of financial institutions. That's where my mind goes. That's one primary example of systematic racism that has really had a negative or detrimental impact on communities of color and indigenous communities. Home ownership is a challenge. We know about redlining in African-American communities. Systematic racism impacts all systems, but it also, it also hurts people at the individual level, you know, so sometimes we think about these really broad institutions, we think about education, we think about health, we think about financial, but we don't often take the time, I think, as professionals to really narrow it down. What does it mean for this person, this individual person, and how is their world around them changed by the systematic racism, by discrimination? Vaming Ta deals with these systemic barriers often as the executive director of the Asian Economic Development Association in St. Paul. He works with immigrants and refugees in the Little Mekong District. And his understanding of these barriers draws on his family's experience coming to America as refugees. So many people, when they first came to the U.S., obviously they were supported by uh, the government, the welfare system in the U.S., and then, you know, eventually they would have to go out and find jobs and, and so on. And, you know, and many of them understood the stigma of being on welfare. And that certainly was something that I understood from, from uh, my family, that you need to get on welfare as soon as you can, uh, because it's both socially sort of unacceptable, because that's what we were hearing from the community. And I remember um, just hearing from how, my mother was treated by our social workers like, 
you know, so you got to go out there and find a job. We can't, we can't continue to give you money <laughs> to support your family as refugees, you know, that type of thing. So many of those, um, uh, those lessons were reinforced both from our family, but also from, from society as refugees. And so we understood the importance of money, um, you know, and earning your own money. So what are the message you receive from your childhood experiences with institutions like schools is that you are a problem. We asked Jennifer how that could impact young people as they get older. I think that a person's experience, their early experiences, can set the tone for subsequent relationships. And so, you know, as a young person who experiences discrimination, you know, perhaps no one in class looks like them, their teachers certainly don't look like them, they they may have um, some actual, you know, experience, you know, racism from their um, schoolmates. That sets the tone as they grow into young adulthood and adults, you know, when they're in, you know, receiving health care or, you know, approaching a financial institution or with law enforcement, their interactions, you know, so these large systems, you know, those first memories really oftentimes are the ones that stick with them throughout their life if there isn't anything to interrupt that. But what if something or someone does interrupt that? What if that someone is your dad? This is Michael Lavager. I am Michael Laverger, a citizen of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa. Um, I'm an architect. Michael is an architect focused on working with tribal lands. He is a partner at DSGW Architects, and he is the founder of First American Design Studio. We talked to him in the DSGW office. We had a couple of audio challenges in the form of some construction in a busy Main Street. Twyla, not to mention, we had to do our physical distancing protocols. Michael's dad had a plan for him to succeed. What he didn't realize is that his encouragement of his son would lead Michael to be brave enough to pursue a different dream. Well, it started out when I was very young. My dad was a journeyman kind of civil engineer. I learned a lot when he was in the the army. Um, He served in World War II in the Korean conflict, and he wanted me to become an engineer. As a journeyman kind of civil engineer, he did a lot of training of of young engineers coming out of college, and he said, that's just not the way to go. I want you to be an engineer so you can you don't have to go through this. So um, he taught me algebra when I was in the sixth grade, and uh, I, I finished high school algebra by the time I was in 10th grade, and he wanted me to be an engineer, but I also liked art. So I did a lot of drawing, and as a kid, I drew, you know, my dream house. It just was one of the things I did. I'd sit at the kitchen table and draw my dream house, the plans, and nobody taught me. I just kind of figured it out and uh, did all that stuff. And then when I was in high school, I did a book report on Leonardo da Vinci, and uh, I learned that he was an artist, and he was a scientist, and he was an architect and a sculptor and everything else in between. And thought, you know what, I want to look into architecture. What's that about? Because I looked at some of his buildings and I was like, these are amazing. When I was a junior in high school, I went to NDSU for a kind of a field trip on my own, just to take a tour and and wanted to look at their architecture school and walked into the president's office at NDSU. I didn't know you couldn't do that. I just kind of went in and said, (laughs) can I see the president? 
And I did, didn't know. You don't know those things when you're a kid, you know? Yeah. They said, sure, come on in. And I, and I went in and met with him. And he talked to me. He says, and he brought me over to the School of Architecture and says, you want to be an architect? And I said, sure, I'd like to be. He says, well, I'll give you a scholarship if you come to school here. We've, we haven't had any. We've only had one Native American graduate from our school from School of Architecture, and I'd like you to be the second. And so I said, sure. And uh, at that time, I just said, I'm going to school at NDSU and went there and, and uh you know, went there after my senior year and graduated shortly after, and I became their second uh, graduate architect. Uh, there's been several more since then, but that's kind of been my path is kind of almost uh, kind of by chance, but uh, it's something that I really find that I love. I love doing architecture. By the way, NDSU, it's North Dakota State University. Michael wasn't viewed as a problem. He was viewed as someone with potential. What's true for an individual can be true for a community if we learn to look beyond our biases. And Vameng wants us to think differently about these communities. I think the first thing I want to say is that money does not define wealth, or, and that's how we, we define wealth, is, which is money and property. And I think from lower-income community and from immigrant communities, um, wealth has a different definition. Um, it's not just about money or how, you know, or how much uh, property uh, you own. And I think that's the, one of the problems, in, uh, that one of the reasons we haven't really addressed poverty in a meaningful way is that if you're poor, then you automatically fall into the deficit category. And often we measure and categorize people just based on how much money they have. And we're missing out on these other things that affect people's lives more you know, their quality of life, and if they, if they can access opportunities that they want or need. And so we need to broaden how we see um, people's economic status. Yeah. I don't I, know if I explained that no, well, but... <laughs> no, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> so, Vameng is encouraging us to broaden our thinking about the value of community. We'll be back with more Small Change. Small Change is supported by Thrivent through generous support from the Thrivent Foundation. Thrivent is driven by a higher purpose to help people achieve financial clarity and to make the most of all they've been given. Small Change is also supported in part by the McKnight Foundation, which works to advance a more just, creative, and abundant future where people and planet thrive. Learn more at mcknight.org. And we're back with more small change. Remember that voice you heard at the top of the episode? That was Katrina Simmons. My name is Katrina, and I work at the University of Minnesota Institute on Community Integration. Katrina brings another perspective to thinking about community. She has a lot to say about living with a disability and being treated with dignity. So we met her at her apartment building in St. Paul. We asked her to tell us about her disability. So I live with um, cerebral palsy, and so for, that can mean a variety of different things for different people. For me, it means that I use a wheelchair, um, and I am unable to use my legs and arms in the way that somebody without a disability would use them. Almost every physical activity of my life is impacted in some way. Katrina needs help every day. 
To get that help, she has to navigate a confusing set of government services to have her daily needs met. But that need to rely on government services often comes with misunderstandings. And the cost of multiple personal care aids, transportation, and medical care are often questioned as taking advantage of the system. Katrina explains some of the issues she has to face. I think I like people to to be aware of that it's a, it's a lot that we're juggling as we try and lead a regular life as best we can. And I, I think sometimes people don't realize that and people think, well, she works. She must not need Social Security. And I don't need the money every month anymore, but I do need the home and community-based services. So sometimes the reason with pe- people with disabilities are expensive is because we want to stay alive, which I feel like is not a huge request. But I think no, it can look that way at, at the outset. Ah, yeah, that's not a huge request at all. No. Mm-mm. And then... I'm I'm sure there is legitimate fraud in the system, but I, I don't think that we would be the population that would do it willfully and maliciously. Yeah. I don't know which population would. I'm not saying everybody would, but I'm just saying I think sometimes we look like we're trying to be fraudulent and we're just trying to keep our access to our health care and our home and community-based services. <laughs> Navigating government services is one thing. Navigating people's perceptions is another. These perceptions are riddled with stereotypes about disabled people and what their desires and motivations truly are. I think that I would like them to take with them, like, the complexity of living with a disability. And there's a, I feel like there's an assumption among people some people who don't previously know people with a disability and particularly with disabilities that we we either we don't want to work or that our the expectations were too low for us to want to work and i am sure that that has been true throughout the history of time i know a lot of people with disabilities and i don't know a single one who <sighs> Like, just really just was planning their entire life just, like, never to work and to sit with their feet up and eat ding-dongs all day. There was always some way that they wanted to give back, no matter how many circumstances and barriers they had in their way. And I guess that is the message that I try to take with me when I have to think about the number of barriers facing the generation after me rather than all this person wanted to do because they thought that they didn't have to do anything because they were disabled was sit and eat ding-dongs all day. That, that, that's not a helpful way to think about anyone, but it's particularly not a, way to, a helpful way to think about people when you want things to change for the better. Yeah, <laughs> And absolutely. we have determined that to change things for the better, we need more people with disabilities to be able to work and access the services they need. And so just try to have an open mind. Individuals with low and unstable incomes want to be treated as human beings when they ask for help instead of being seen as a problem. Because they are not a problem. They are members of the community. And when they struggle, we all struggle. Ultimately, they want to help themselves. They want to be seen as capable. They want to contribute. They deserve to be treated with dignity. 
One small change you can make today is to take a look at your own biases. What can you do to change your thinking and actions toward people with low and unstable incomes? Not sure where to start? Harvard has a tool that can help. It's available on our website. And right now is as good a time as any to start. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Minnesota Public Radio and American Public Media. Small change would not have been possible without the work of many people, including... Executive producer, Stephanie Curtis. Producers, Chris Farrell, Twyla Dang, and Veronica Rodriguez. Editor, Brittany Arneson. Original music by Dexter Wolfe. You can find other Small Change episodes and find resources for more information about money by going to our website, smallchangestories.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Pinterest. A special thank you to the Thriven Foundation and the McKnight Foundation for their generous support.